Hi everyone, from socialservice.sg, I'm Samantha, co-hosting this episode with Jing Yao. And the theme for today's The Future of episode is finance and leaving nobody behind. So we have with us today uh, Edward E from Gift Funds, a non-profit which lends low-cost funds at scale to South Asian social enterprises, and Mesrav, a Swiss fintech which seeks to increase the accessibility of safe and secure saving accounts. We chat about his three big ideas on finance and leaving nobody behind. First, the removal of persistent biases. Second, the reduction of servicing costs. And third, the incentives of impact in the financial sector. Hi, welcome to the podcast, Edward. As a start, tell us about your work at Gift Funds, where you work with small social enterprises in South Asia to provide low-cost, sustainable loans and a range of other support, which feels neatly encapsulated by your tagline, transform, sustain, and grow. Also, I saw that you're part of the current YC Summer 2022 cohort. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you, Sam. Really appreciate it. And how I started Gift Funds, I actually found myself stumbling into it. Back in 2016, I had backpacked quite a bit across South and Southeast Asia to visit social enterprises. And throughout those few months, I ended up visiting almost 80 social enterprises. In fact, I think it's slightly more than that. Throughout this period, I really had the privilege of visiting these incredible businesses, which were changing thousands of lives. But I think because I have visited so many, I noticed a trend between all of them. They, didn't, they weren't able to gain access to capital, which was very frustrating because they were doing this such great work, but they weren't able to grow their businesses and their incredible ideas. So fast forward a couple of months after that, towards the end of my backpacking trip, I met my co-founder in India on a train while I was visiting social enterprises in the country. And we thought that we could do something about this. Can we provide these social enterprises with capital, particularly social enterprises in smaller cities in rural areas where capital doesn't flow to? Today, what we do is that we take donations and work together with foundations to actually lend these donations out at 0 to 4% interest. What's really quite unique and our value add is really picking the most impactful neglected social enterprises. So we actually go into these rural areas, we go into these smaller cities to actually find these social enterprises, screen them, and pick the best ones. And we do this by working together with local partners and use data and technology in um, huge ways across our business to find some of these social enterprises. We're the first funder in also many of these social enterprises. And I would love to share a story of one of our social enterprises quite quickly. It's um, Energini, and it started by Akash, who... When he first started, it was about 19 years old, so really young. And he found a very innovative way to change or turn ashes into porcelain-like sculptures. So what he did, obviously, was go to temples, take the ashes from the temples, and bring them to the prisons, where he created recidivism programs for the prisoners to actually create sculptures and also help to rehabilitate them. They actually managed to significantly reduce recidivism rates in the, in the intervention groups which they had this for, where they now hire over 150 people and inmates across India, which is quite cool. Our loan actually helped him expand his operations to more temples. No, that's super cool. I love that you shared the story of that one social enterprise that you helped on the ground that makes things more real for anybody who's listening to this. As always, as part of this mini-series, we invited you to think about the future of finance and leaving nobody behind because that's really kind of core to the work that you have done and are doing right now. So you helped us identify three big ideas centered on the use of technology to enable those left behind by the global financial system to have a fair shot and catch up. So your three big ideas are 
First, removing persistent biases in the financial system. Second, reducing servicing costs. And third, incentivizing impact in the financial system. So let's take them in turn. The first big idea is to remove persistent biases in the financial system, which in a way counters this notion of continuing to do these things because it is how things have always been done. Tell us more about these biases and how to remove them. So I think this first idea really is me trying to advocate that more data and better data should be used to actually include those left behind. The funny thing is that despite how modern the global financial system is today, many people are excluded from it due to really no fault of their own. But instead, what we see is because of antiquated rules to catch financial crime, things like money laundering, fraud, and terrorist financing. This just locks out millions of people from the financial system. So in fact, we conservatively estimate that over 700 million people are deemed too high risk to bank. But when you kind of break it down, I think the question I'll ask everybody is, you know, have you ever thought about what too high risk means? <laughs> and the funny thing is that bank systems, when they determine whether someone's too high risk to bank, they only look at a few things to decide this risk, like where somebody is born, where their address is, for example. It's only a couple of things. And living in Singapore, you know, you might not face it, we might not face it. But imagine if you were a refugee from Syria and you're working in Europe, you've got a respectable job, you've managed to turn your life around, right? But you really quickly realize that every bank rejects you from opening a bank account. It's very difficult to open a bank account. Despite you not being sanctioned or doing anything wrong fundamentally, you just cannot get a bank account because the bank systems have categorized you as too high risk because you were born in Syria. And they also say, look, we could do a manual review on you, but you have too little money. So wait till you become a millionaire or a billionaire, and then we're willing to bank you by doing this manual review. Like I find this, and I think we as a, as a company find this incredibly lazy and discriminatory. And to be honest, it doesn't really make business sense either because it doesn't really reflect risk well at all especially today when we have technology to allow us to use alternative data points and sources of data. So I think I'll draw a parallel to the revolution in credit risk. So for those of you who are not very familiar with what's actually quite innovative and what's happening in credit risk in emerging markets, is that I think companies realize that traditional ways of getting a loan doesn't really make sense. You needed a guarantor, very stable income, repayment history, and collateral. Not that any of these things are bad, but tech has realized and, 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 and data has realized or playing around with data has realized that you know a whole bunch of other data points could be used. Things like how much data is used by someone on their phone, regular charging on their phones even. And these things actually play a bigger role on whether someone is credit worthy than these traditional factors of you know, collateral, repayment history and the like. So what I'm saying is that we really need a revolution in assessing financial crime risk of customers and to really include people that were incorrectly tagged as high risk, high risk of financial crime. And on a side note, this is actually something which I'm doing with my startup, Masref. Yeah, and we'll come back to that later. Thanks for bringing that up now. I definitely enjoy hearing about kind of different financial systems around the world and the kind of biases that baked into it and how much of it that's part of the legacy system. So I guess the second big idea for finance and those left behind is, re is to reduce servicing costs. 
So what are these costs to customers and how do we start reducing them? So this second idea is tied to the first idea as well, where the first idea talks about tech, allowing for the use of more data that would include those left behind. So you're taking into account more things. The second big idea is that technology has already reduced the cost and is continuously making progress in reducing the cost of actually servicing customers. And this has a side or knock-on effect of actually allowing customers that were previously too expensive to serve to now be actually profitable. And we can then provide them with critical financial services, things like loans, bank accounts, and insurance. So these costs include kind of all, how you can think about these traditional costs includes physically verifying identities of users in rural areas. So you really have to send a bank officer down to see whether the person is who they say they are. You might also have to set up branches, physical branches in smaller towns. Or in the case of, let's say, an investment, really physically going down to do due diligence on a potential social enterprise you might want to lend to or invest in. There are many examples of how tech has really reduced costs and expanded financial inclusion. But I think I'll use gift funds as a case study since it's closer to home and I'm a bit more familiar with what we do. So when we first started gift funds, as I said earlier, we really knew we wanted to fund neglected social enterprises. How do we fund social enterprises in rural areas, in tier three, tier four cities, uh, or started by marginalized groups, which have no access to capital? We realized that 98% of capital are stuck in tier one cities. So in India, these are cities like Mumbai, Delhi, Bangalore, Hyderabad. But because the cost of actually sourcing, doing due diligence, and managing any investments was so high, it was prohibitive to actually invest in these social enterprises. So for example, to give a loan, like imagine you're trying to give a loan to a social enterprise. You have to go down to the ground, talk to a bunch of social enterprises, find who might seem to make the most sense, inspect their work, do due diligence on their finances, and then make an investment or a loan to them. Either way, you have to come back down again sometime in the future to manage it. This process alone requires multiple trips, which is so expensive. So I think we very quickly realized we couldn't do this. <laughs> we couldn't do things the traditional way when we started. We had to reduce this cost in order to actually save money for our social enterprises and to actually provide our social enterprises with this capital. We actually stumbled upon this idea where now we work with what we call network partners. These are basically local community organizations who work very closely with social enterprises in different local communities. And they can take a variety of forms like accelerators, incubators, market access providers. And we realized that they're very good sources of information because of their relationship with these social enterprises. We then relied on them to act as our first initial contact point with these social enterprises and then use local data to actually create a fully remote way of doing due diligence on these social enterprises. Take out all the technical terms. And I think what this means is that our cost of diligencing and sourcing and managing any social enterprise is about 10% of that of any other impact fund. So what was quite interesting was really using the concept of local communities and trust by really digitizing and modernizing it to include those left behind. And in doing so, really reduce our costs in serving a group of customers which have always been left behind. Yeah, no, I love the way that you said that. It's also fascinating to me because I've seen the microfinance industry evolve over time. And it definitely microfinance is very revolutionary when it first came out. But we've also seen the cost of it going up over the years. Like you said, mentioned in terms of going down to verify the uh, borrowers, etc. 
And, you know, I'm excited too to see how fintech will continue to digitalize that process and, and bring down the cost for, for users. So your first and second big ideas were about removal and reduction. This third and final big idea reads a little different in terms of incentivizing impact in the financial sector. So how should we understand impact? And subsequently, how do you go about creating incentives for such impact? So this is quite different from my first two ideas. And I think it's more conceptual. The idea behind capitalism was really built on the premise that doing good for yourself is the best way to do good for society. And this is largely true, actually. We've seen huge progress globally on a range of developmental indices and metrics. Part of it could be arguably ascribed to capitalism. But there's also been a very obvious misalignment that we see today, whether it's around climate, whether it's around inequality, there is a misalignment. And so there's really a need to realign incentives and to incentivize the financial sector or incentivize people to financially do well and in doing so doing, do good. This seems a bit idealistic, but let me actually ground this in you know, reality and what's actually happened. Take, for example, carbon trading. Basically, entire market and financial incentives were created for taking carbon out of the air. You basically take air in. <laughs> and people are incentivized to do that. The world's already moving there. The UK government has actually listed outcomes, social outcomes, which they're willing to pay dollars for, so long as you can prove that your social intervention is able to do that. And they package this in outcome contracts. So all really, really interesting models, which really needs to scale up. I think the question is, or at least the hope is in the future, how do we incentivize impact across the entire financial sector and help them to take into account impact when making decisions around finance? We have words for this right now, like ESG integration and impact finance integration or impact, yeah, impact finance integration. But I think it's increasingly more and more adopted. And I'm really excited for where it goes today. For Give Funds, what we actually do practically is actually we, we, we rate social enterprises both on impact and finance. And we have a certain balance, what we call efficient impact frontier, in which after a certain point or minimums in either one of them, they're able then to gain access to our loans. We then measure this impact before or, the ex, or we ask them for the expected impact. And we then measure it after as well to see whether or not they hit it, which will be requirements for subsequent loans as well. So that's all I think what I'm hoping will be the norm going forward. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that's a lot of um, new programs and initiatives that are being done to really incentivize more corporate players, more parts of society to really incorporate impact. So it's really fascinating to see how this has been done through a financial lens as well. And I obviously love your example of carbon credits too. So you mentioned that you also recently started a new company called Mesref, which as we understand focuses on making banking more inclusive. Could you tell us more about Mesref and the work that you're doing there? Sure. We are a Swiss fintech and we're intending to eventually become a digital bank that provides offshore accounts, but not to the wealthy, as Switzerland's very well known for. Instead, we really want to provide offshore accounts to regular everyday people in distressed economies. So think countries with high inflation, broken banking systems. The first market which you're looking to start in is Lebanon. And for those of you who are not necessarily very familiar with Lebanon, the context is that today, inflation is over 150%. 
and the currency has devalued more than 10 times. People's savings in the bank has basically evaporated. It's not just evaporated. People's savings in the bank were stuck in the bank because the banks put in withdrawal restrictions and they could not withdraw their savings. We spoke to users whose you know, children have to drop out from school, not because they don't have enough money, but because they couldn't access their own money and see it evaporate in front of their eyes. So the question for us is, you know, if high net worth individuals are able to access offshore banking, why can't we provide it to every, everyday people today, especially with, you know, technology today? So just to kind of tie your three big ideas to what you're doing now, I'm, I'm super curious to know, how did those ideas shape how you conceptualize and build Nesra? I think that's putting the cart a bit above, uh, in front of the uh, in front of the horse. But at the same time, I can like really see the the them tying in together, right? Like on the topic of biases, we quite quickly figured out as we were we were thinking about this problem that we had to use technology to be able to adjudicate between who's actually a high risk client and who's not, when everybody else paints everyone from Lebanon as high risk, and so we just had to find a way to make it low cost enough to do it. So you can see really how technology allows us to, and so, so we, we eventually moved towards, hey, can we look at a bunch of different data points and how do we minimize the cost per customer? And the obvious solution which came up was technology. So what we want now do is that we use technology to look at, for example, where people are when they do transact. So we can then ping whether it's at houses or whether it's at their work, for example. And if they're consistently between these places, you know, you can quite easily say, hey, this person is has has pretty regular patterns and behaviors. Similarly, for costs as well, doing all of this digitally has reduced costs tremendously. Whereas in the previous offshore banking industry, that you have to go down to Switzerland, you have to open the account yourself, and they, they, you need at least two million in deposits to actually open it for the banks to find it worthwhile. We're still very early in our journey and we're still building a lot of the technology and hopefully including more customers. But I can see, funny enough, how these three big ideas really tie into Mustra. The final idea was really about how we put impact as lockstep into our business in that every additional customer that we bank who's excluded is actually good business sense for us because we're actually scraping the market for people who are not actually high risk classified as high risk by everybody else. No, I love that. I've definitely worked with a lot of companies too that do that on either the SME credit side or an individual loan side. So I I think that, like you mentioned, there is a revolution around better classifying what risk means and better scoring people based on their risk or rather scoring their risk based on other factors that have not we've not traditionally seen in the banking system. I'm also curious to know, you mentioned that you're starting out in Lebanon, but like what other markets are you looking and how are you approaching, I guess, market expansion and where you want to operate in? Yeah, we have a few target markets in mind, but to be honest, we've had inbound requests from, you know, people as far as Venezuela and Argentina to Pakistan, to South Africa, Nigeria. High inflation is one common threat which we see. But also, in many cases, broken banking systems, which don't necessarily allow for a lot of people to be included or get charged extremely high fees. And that's, you know, all of that is on the cards. I think we, we are, we're focused on a market and we're focused on building right now, but we do see a lot of opportunities outside. Amazing. So with those three big ideas in mind and the work that you're doing with GiftFunds and Masrav, 
what would the world look like if you were to be wildly successful in what you're doing in the next five years? In the next five years, I hope that on either side, we're able to really expand the number of people gaining access to financial services, both in terms of you know, direct-to-consumer solutions, but also marginalized groups like the social enterprises we serve in gift funds. I would say five years is quite ambitious to include everyone who's excluded, but that's what we're working towards and, and hopefully it will be, it'll be a reality. Five years is short, but you know, it's always good to be ambitious. But this is stretched out a little bit more to give you space to imagine a different world. What would happen if you're wildly successful in the next 50 years? I think really in 50 years, that's my hope is that we, when I talked about my third big idea about aligning incentives, is that impact and financial incentives, both for people and organizations, are fully aligned. And because of that, people will be competing very strongly with us, both at Gift Funds and Mustrash, to cater to these neglected groups, to offer them better service. In fact, at Gift Funds, for the last five years or so, we've been sharing about this market all the time. And we're like, why don't more people come in to solve this problem and compete with us? And that just hasn't happened, unfortunately. And we're still waiting for the day when, when you know, we're really fighting for our customers. That's always great. It's at that point where you know that you've created the market, which is an amazing feeling. We've been discussing a lot about your work and it feels appropriate now to turn to you and your personal journey. A question that many listeners might have is, how did you as a Singaporean start traveling for work, spend significant time in South Asia, and end up building a company that's currently focused on Lebanon? <laughs> I think Steve Jobs once said, you can only connect the dots looking backwards and not forwards. And I think that's very true for, for me and how I, I got here. I had started off in 2016 on a purpose-finding trip, essentially trying to find my purpose and trying to find what I wanted to do with my life. And backpacking, it just so happens that I started off this backpacking journey at Center. So Center is the office for Professor Mohammed Yunus, who started Grameen Bank and the whole microfinance movement. And there, as part of the program, I met a bunch of different social enterprises. And I was really, really curious about it because it was the first time I was spending significant time out of Singapore and in Bangladesh, in Taka of all places. It was really, really cool. And I thought, you know, I didn't, I don't have enough. I want to see more social enterprises. I want to visit them more. And it just so happens that they're the kindest people around. So they're always referring to another social enterprise somewhere else. And that's how I essentially flew from Bangladesh back to Singapore for, for like two days and then straight off to Myanmar to visit more social enterprises. That journey basically continued throughout where I bounced between different small cities, visiting social enterprises, which just pointed me on to the next one. And in doing so, you know, met really, really cool social enterprises. Like there was this social enterprise in, in Cambodia who was actually a recording studio, world-class recording studio. And in what, what they do is that they actually find international artists in to help them record their, their albums. And in their downtime, this acts as a cross-subsidization for local Kimber culture, which was so thoroughly destroyed um, because of the Kimber Rouge. And that was such an interesting social enterprise. And so I had like incredible privilege to see these social enterprises, talk to the social entrepreneurs behind them. And in some cases, and actually many cases, actually live with them to share meals with them. And that just got me really interested in social enterprises. 
I found myself in India after that visiting social enterprises, and that's where I bumped into my co-founder. Actually, on a in India, it's called a sleeper non-AC train. It's where it's a train where you keep about eight people in a small cabin, and I was in there for about fifteen or sixteen days, which was terrifying, but also really enjoyable. After you get shown incredible kindness from everyday people there, and then essentially that's why I ended up in Salvation because I met my co-founder. He was very experienced in business already, and we thought we would start in India because the need there is massive. It's a huge market as well, and he's very familiar with it. We essentially started lending of our own pockets, <laughs> and it took us almost a year to find our business model, the one which I described earlier, and to make it legal as well because there were state, federal regulations, foreign regulations, regulations in the financial sector as well as the charity sector or nonprofit sector. On which we had to deal with, yeah. But but it was such a fun journey, and I learned so much from that experience. So I came to the UK to further my studies and do, and and that's where I met my two other co-founders, Amir and Abdullah. So they're Syrian and Palestinian, and obviously growing up they had very difficult experiences, but because of that they also have the lived experiences of being one of the seven hundred million people I talked about earlier. They are both incredibly accomplished and have studied in you know the top schools around the world. But despite all of that, when it came to the UK, they found it very difficult to open a bank account. I think Amr took three or four times before he was able to actually open one, which was so eye-opening to me and so different, uh, even from my work in South Asia and Southeast Asia. And we just spoke about it and decided that, hey, you know, if the wealthy and high net worth individuals can open up accounts in Switzerland. And why not everyday people? Why can't we democratize access to that? And that's really how I ended up kicking off this journey. Lebanon came up because it was a market which they understood very well. And it's also going through it's, uh, a severe economic crisis right now, where we have friends from Lebanon whose entire lives and their families' lives have been destroyed essentially because of the financial crisis in a short two, three years or so. I think what I find remarkable about you, Edward, is just that like wherever you go, if you see a problem, you feel an intense urge to solve it and you always end up building something that brings an incredibly innovative and new approach to whatever that problem is. So that's that's usually remarkable. And as somebody who also does a lot of work in emerging markets, I'm kind of curious to know what what is it about emerging markets that keeps bringing you and drawing you back to them? Because we've seen this both in GIFAS as well as Mesref now. Thanks for your kind words. Uh, you're really too kind. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you get it as well. Like there's so much excitement, there's so much energy, but there's also so much room, there's so much potential. And I think what frustrates me is that lost potential. People who by all means deserve a regular life just aren't able to get access to it because the system was built against them. And I think it's really cool and interesting to solve them. And I do feel some level of responsibility being so privileged in Singapore, uh, from Singapore and throughout the years to do something with, with, with my life and to do something with, with the work I'm doing. So a final question to all our guests. So knowing what you know now through all of your years of experience, what is the one thing that you will tell a younger Edward who was just starting out on his journey? <laughs> There's some hindsight bias here, I guess. But I think I would congratulate him on taking a very different path 
and to tell him not to worry so much and focus on where his heart brings him and that, you know, things will be okay. It's also funny because I think I could use that advice now and every now and then. 